0: Amen. Please be seated. And if you have your copy of God's word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me now to the book of Luke, the book of Luke, chapter 19. You can also find the text for our passage this morning on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's message. This passage commonly referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus is an important Passage in the life and ministry of Christ, and it really marks one of the major turning points in the Gospel of Luke. We've not been in the book of Luke in some time, in a couple of years now, but if you remember, it's marked by major swings um, in the ministry and purpose of Christ as his focus narrows and narrows and narrows. And just as a way of reminder, it's worth um, thinking about this. Um, When you think about the book of Luke, Luke's um, Gospel letter, um, it was written, according to Luke 1 and uh, the first few verses, to offer an accurate record of what took place so that we would have certainty of what we've been taught. Luke um, being a very learned man and a physician, uh, some believe he followed along Paul, alongside Paul in his missionary journeys. He set out to research and to compile a very accurate, a very detailed account of the life and ministry of Christ. And we know that in the book of Luke and then the following book, the book of Acts, he did that. He gave us a very detailed, orderly account of the details of the life and ministry of Jesus. But while that is fair to say as a whole summary of the book of Luke, that wasn't his only focus. Um, I, it would be wrong of us just to stop with he wanted to accurately tell you what happened, because he does have an agenda, and you always need to know the agenda of um, who you're reading. What are their biases? What are they wanting to get out of this? And Luke really does have a very glaring agenda and a bias in his letter, as do all of the gospel writers, and that's He wants you to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Luke wants you to know what took place so that you will believe. So the goal here is not just to have knowledge. The goal here is not simply to have all of the facts. The goal here is to hear them and believe. And believe in the one that he writes. Believe in the works that he did. Believe in his plan of salvation, which can be for you And so in our passage today, we see that take place. What a beautiful uh, moment in in the life and ministry of Christ. What a beautiful moment in the book of Luke where Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. It it starts, it it really starts, I mean, you could say it starts in Genesis, but it starts in the book of Luke around chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 51, there's this this glimpse in Jesus' life. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face... To go to Jerusalem. And here we are, ten chapters later, Jesus focusing himself, narrowing down, marching to Jerusalem. And we've reached that point in our passage today. These actions would put him on a guaranteed path with the cross. And as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, Lord willing, Good Friday this week, and Easter Sunday next Sunday, these are the events, the consequences of this action by Christ, by taking this journey to the city. And so that's what's going on. That's a little bit of the context. Um, I now invite you simply just to follow along with me as we read um, what took place, and then we will consider the implications of it. Hear me as I read for us uh, this morning the Word of God. Luke chapter 19, I'll begin in verse 28 and read through verse 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. But when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Excuse me. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And just as the water that falls from the heavens and down to the earth So too does his word go forth this day and accomplish everything he set out for it. Would you now go with me to the Lord and ask his blessing upon this time? Dear Heavenly Father, we confess this morning that if you do not, through the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, we will be blind, we will be deaf, and we will be unchanged by your word. But through the softening power of your Holy Spirit, we can see and hear and believe this day. Oh, would that be the case for everyone here and all those joining us online? Would they see and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Father, I pray that you would be with us now in the preaching and the hearing of your word. Would you give me strength, Lord, as I deliver this message? Father, would you give me an extra measure of strength as I confess to you that my, my, my mind is a bit scattered at this moment. It seems like too many pages are open. Would you speak through me, O Lord, and not let it be my words, but yours. For the benefit and the blessing of your people. And to the praise of your name. And I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I want us to really focus on one aspect of this passage. Sometimes I I think it's an underappreciated aspect of the passage. There are so many things going on, and we we will just scratch the surface in in the triumphal entry. And it's a blessing that we get to do this again, Lord willing, next year. And we keep getting to do this because we'll helpfully learn more and more as we do. But really, this one point, this one idea that we need to walk away from this morning is God provides everything that is needed in this life for salvation. God provides everything that is needed in this life for salvation, and everything works together for that end, for His glory and for the good of His people. What does that mean for us today? I'm going to try to be very practical this morning. It means that you can have salvation today. You can have forgiveness for your sins. You can have new life in Jesus Christ here and now. It means that this promise will not be broken. When, when God says you may have new life, when God promises life in Jesus Christ, you can know that because He says it, it will be so. It's not based upon our works. It's not based upon our merit. It's not based on what we do. It's all about what He did. And we'll see that in glimpses throughout this passage. It's all about what He did. We'll see that, Lord willing, as we continue on in this week and the Good Friday service and again, resurrection morning. As we stand in awe and wonder at what He did. As a means of understanding this, I want us to see three scenes or three glimpses in our passage this morning. Three ways or acts of God's provision laid out for us. First, God provides the means for his plans to be fulfilled. We see this very, very poetically in verses 28 to 35. And then, secondly, I want us to see that the crowd speaks truth by God's grace in ignorance. The crowd speaks truth in ignorance by God's grace in verses 36 through 38. And then finally, all of creation proclaims the glory of God. We find that in our final verses. Each moment, each scene in this passage displays God's providence, God's purpose, and God's plan. Would you please follow along with me this morning as we consider each of them? And our text begins, outside of Jerusalem, near the small towns of Bethphage and Bethany... Here at the Mount of Olives, very close to his destination. We're we're just outside of Jerusalem. We're we're right at the cusp of really what his ministry has been about. And Jesus makes a request of the disciples Go into the town or village and fetch a donkey. Now, this may. It like a strange request, but we need to examine it. And I I admit that there is some scholarly debate here. I find it unwarranted. But there is a a minor debate in academic circles that Jesus would have pre-ordered this donkey and sent it to this location to be picked up. Kind of like we do... um, curbside on some of our food nowadays. It's one of the things that's come out of the pandemic. You can order something and say, I'm going to be here at this point in this time, and I'm going to get it. But I reject that idea. I don't think that that fits the biblical narrative, and I actually don't think it fits with what Jesus was trying to do. And I I will warn you of that, and the reason I bring it up is most of the time when scholars are trying to do that, they're what's called revisionist and they're trying to erase the Bible of anything miraculous, anything supernatural, and anything that would show um, extraordinary. They want ordinary, regular, plain. So they change dates of when books were written. So it's written after events. They want to change miracles to more mundane things. And so I, I just I bring that up to tell you there is a debate, um, but it has been mostly squashed um, because Jesus is God. And Jesus knew well and good what he was about to be about. And so it does not surprise us, or it should not surprise us, that if Jesus wanted a donkey, he said, let there be a donkey, and there was a donkey. Just like he said, let there be light, and there was light. In fact, it it actually brings greater significance to this account, if that's the case. Because Think about what what had to happen from a practical level. God had to raise a man or a family in these villages. God had to make them a farmer or a tender of animals over the years. God had to provide for that family a donkey and not let them use it. Don't miss that. This is significant in this passage. What's the point of having an animal except for using it? We don't know why. We don't know why this owner of this animal had an animal that had not been used, but he had, or she had. And yet, at the same time, we fully know the answer to that question. Why? Because God said, let it be so, and it was. And so then, just a small way, in such a minor instance, and in a very minuscule way, we see God's providence displayed here. Because God had need of something, and so God not only had the donkey at that place, God put the people in that place to give them the money to provide so that they could have the donkey, so that they could feed it and raise it, all to be used at a very specific point in time. His providence is is bursting forth in the page over and over again in ways that we may simply overlook at the shock of what's going on. And again, we don't know the back story. We don't know what's going on in the village or with the people. But we do know why. Jesus says, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you'll find a colt tied. On which no one had ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks why are you untying it, say this. The Lord has need of it. Why a donkey in this village had never been ridden? Because the Lord had need of it. That's why. We can zoom out even further. Um, we can look microscopically and, and see God's providence, but we can also look at the macro level. Um, another reason or reasons that there was a cult that had not been ridden in this town when Jesus needed it was because this is fulfilling specific prophecies about who Christ was and what he was going to do. Just two passages uh, we'll look at this morning um, come to mind. Genesis 49, 11, and then Zechariah 9, 9. In Genesis, we've got the blessing of the 12 sons. Jacob is blessing his sons. He's he's uttering prophecy over them toward the end of his life. And he gets to the tribe of Judah. And part of their blessing is these words. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. In this blessing, as odd as it sounds, we see the tribe of Judah would get the blessing of a colt. Okay, that's interesting. Be tied to the vine. Not only that, but this tribe would be washed in the blood of grapes. Again, kind of weird, but okay. Their garments would be stained. Strange blessing, strange blessing. But if we look at the context to which it's written, it actually makes sense. Um, Fruits and uh, various uh, plants would often be used to stain clothing, and this was a very expensive process. This was something to take great pride in. If you were rich enough to have your clothes basically ruined by a color, you could then show off it. Look at who I am. Look at the blessing upon me the blessing that God has bestowed in my life. I can afford not just plain colors, but I can have wine-stained cloaks. And so in some ways, this is a a promise, a blessing for Judah. God will give you an abundance. He will bless you above and beyond what you deserve. But again, we, we take the bigger picture. And what do we learn? Well, Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, heir of this promise. How is it fulfilled? There's a tied up colt being brought to him. The promise, a choice colt from a choice vine will be tied up. Not only that, the washing of blood is very much related to the blood sacrifice Jesus was about to give on behalf of his people. His blood would wash the people. And then even more Almost poetic, but divine in God's nature. It would be done how? Through the blood of grapes. What does Jesus use to institute the Lord's Supper? The blood of grapes, also known as wine. And so we get this prophecy, we, we get this foretelling. Just about 1,500 years in the past, and, and, and that toward the end of the book of Genesis. And then we see it. Being fulfilled in in the life of Christ. And we can look at Zechariah in the same way. Zechariah is giving a prophecy. He's um, offering judgment. It's actually a very dark passage. It's a passage of judgment for the sins of the people of God. And in it, in this interlude, we get a promise. A promise of deliverance. A promise that a king would come. Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. More specifically, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I don't think we can get more of a direct tie than that. Zechariah was promising a Savior would come, and here we have Jesus, the promised Savior, doing exactly what Zechariah foretold. All of this points to God's provision. God provided His people with a written account of His Word, filled with promise and prophecy about what would take place. God then fulfills that prophecy to give assurance that He can be trusted, that His Word is true, that it is reliable. And then think about this from the perspective of the disciples. This this truly would be a baffling scene for them. They hear Jesus and then they respond. They go into a town, into a village. They find a colt. They walk up to a stranger's house with an unridden donkey standing outside, tied up to a post. And they just start untying it. I mean, people get shot over that nowadays. You wouldn't do that. And they start untying it and the owners come out and like, what are you doing? And their simple response, God has need. And then they have the donkey. <laughs> That's the end of the conversation. Again, talking about God's providence, we want to be careful. But wouldn't the likely conclusion here be that that house was full of believers? Wouldn't it likely be that God in his providence put a family there who knew and trusted in him? And, and, in, and in a moment of need, the disciples come and say, God has need. And they were like, okay. Do you, do you see that God's hand of provision on that? That for some reason, according to their profession, they had to be in that spot with an excess donkey at that moment. And when some strangers they've never met before tell them something, they're like, sure, that's fine. I mean, we, we, would, we would question the people delivering our stuff to the house. We question our Amazon drivers. And we know what they're doing. We're watching it on their app. That that's our packaging has come into the door. Who are you? And what are you doing here? But in this this moment of divine provision, God is showing that he gives exactly what is needed in the right way, at the right time, to fulfill his purpose. And so what is the encouragement for us today? What is what is the practical application of, of this? You may be in a season of uncertainty. You may be in a place where you're doubting God's plan for your life. Or maybe you're doubting that God has a plan at all. Maybe it does feel like you're just ping-ponging around from one thing to another. Unsure of where you're headed or what's going on. I would would challenge you, if that's your heart and, and that's the season of life that you're in today. Look at this passage. And consider... God, with specific accuracy, is is pinpointing something from Genesis 49 that's being fulfilled in Luke 19. That is said in Zechariah that's fulfilled in Luke 19. God has the ability to fulfill His plan across time. God has His ability to fulfill His plan in unique ways. And so while you may not know God's plan right now, He has one. And while you may not trust in it because you know yourself, know Him and trust Him. Because it is a plan and it will be fulfilled. And it will be for His glory and for your good. And I can show you that through looking at the next two points. Oh, I love the next two points. Because secondly, so we see God specifically working these things out. Now let's, let's, get some case, let's do a case study. The crowd in ignorance declares and proclaims the truth. By God's providence, in ignorance, they believe, say, and practice that which is true. But before we even get to that, I I, I have to to take a quick pause. We're always always ready to jump on the disciples, and rightly so. (laughs) Quite often, they're a negative case study of how to believe and act, especially Peter. But who's the first ones to put their cloaks down? What, What does it say? The disciples that went and got the donkey, they laid their cloaks on it first. And then immediately following that, the rest of the disciples lay their cloaks on the road. And so while I'm making the point that most of this was acted in ignorance, you've at least got to give them a little bit of credit. They've heard the preaching of Jesus. They've seen his ministry. They've taken part in it and been recipients of it. And so at least in some small way, this act, this gesture, was in recognition of who he was and what he came to do. They were submitting to and agreeing with God's plan, whether they fully grasped it or not. And so while we we want to be quick to, to, to jump on them for their lack of understanding, and again, it's deserved, I just want you to see that and appreciate that for a moment. They had listened to Jesus. But we get this scene that first the disciples that went and got the donkey, lay their cloaks on it. And then the other disciples lay their cloaks on the road. And then we zoom out even further. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. This was not simply strangers. Jesus always had a crowd around him. There was always a broader group of disciples. Those who were followers of Christ. This is not simply the 12. This was a broader grouping of people. This was a, a, the, the multitudes that liked to follow him around. They, again, I want to be careful to, to um, n- not give them too much uh, discredit. But this would have been a group that followed Jesus because it was pretty cool to see what he did next. This was the group that was pretty cool to, um, Hey, Jesus fed me with magic bread. I wonder what he'll do next time. So You get this bigger group. This, this bigger community. And, and as he's coming in. He's, he's coming into the city. This, this, these disciples join him. And we know that people from Jerusalem join. In the other gospel accounts. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. Why? Why were they saying these things? Well... They thought Jesus was a king and they thought he was coming to conquer Jerusalem, to take it and claim it as his throne and as his reign of rule. They thought that he was going to then look to Rome and uh, settle them down to bring them under Jerusalem and not the other way around. They thought that he was going to bring back the Davidic kingdom and the reign and rule um, of their father, David. They looked at Jesus and said, you're the one to do all of these things that have been promised. Now, here's the great irony in this passage. Oh, it's so beautiful. They were exactly right. They were completely right. What they said and what they shouted and what they thought was all true. He is the king. He is the one who claims Jerusalem as his place of worship. He is the one to reclaim it. He is the one to conquer Rome. He is the one to usher in the kingdom that was promised through David. They just saw it a little differently. How that was going to happen looked a little different. See, they, they wanted a warrior. And he was a warrior. It takes a great man of God to stand and be blasphemed the way he was. To be beat beyond recognition. So bad his own mother didn't notice him. To willingly march yourself to a cross and subject yourself to an implement of death. That takes a warrior But that sure didn't play out the way they thought it was. But I I love the irony in that. They were right. They were exactly right in what they said and what they shouted. That's God's providence, my friends. If I could encourage you in any way this morning, if I could bring any hope to your life, it's this. Look at the crowd. The crowd was ignorant and still were saying the right things. They didn't fully understand, and yet they were fulfilling God's plan. There's hope for you and me. Because how often are we acting in ignorance? How often are we doing things because we think they're right and, and we're not really where we need to be, but the Lord's like, I'll use it, I can work with that. There are times that you completely blow it and do something wrong, and you convince yourself that you'll never recover from this. There are times that you find that you don't know God's plan or you don't know what to do next. So you find you just find yourself stumbling ahead going, well, I I know there's a cliff up there ahead, but let's just take it one step at a time and hope I don't go off the edge. This crowd did not know what they were saying. Even worse, a little while later, this very same crowd would be the ones demanding the crucifixion of Christ. And yet in both cases, they acted in ignorance. And yet in both cases, they fulfilled the divine will of God. And even better, that will of God was to save some of the very ones that were saying those things. Think about that. Jesus died for some of the ones in the crowd that yelled crucify him. Jesus died very well for some of the soldiers. Look to the centurion. When, when Jesus utters his last breath, the, the, the words that came out of his mouth is nothing short of prophecy and understanding of who the divine God is. And so, even in ignorance, even when things aren't going the way we think they should, don't miss the divine plan of God. Oh, but it gets better. If it's not in, enough of an encouragement for you and me today that the crowd acts in ignorance and yet still proclaims truth, let's talk about the rocks. Oh, we've got to talk about the rocks. Because all of creation, every bit of it, every aspect of it, proclaims and declares the glory of God. This is taking place. And what a dramatic, wonderful, powerful scene. What, what a beautiful moment. You know, I, I think about it through our first song this morning and how precious it is to, to have our little ones walking around with those palm branches. Listening to that song about the children of God and Hosanna and praising Him. And imagine that's happening. And then over here on the corner wall, you've got a group with arms folded with grumpy faces just glaring. That'd be the Pharisees. They're, they're witnessing this take place. They're seeing this display and it, it's an awe-inspiring display, but they've got gloom on their faces. They've got anger in their faces. They... they just can't take it anymore. And, and they've been in the background in the book of Luke. then they'll come up and they'll try something. It doesn't work. And they retreat. And we get this back and forth. And so they go to Jesus. Jesus, you've got to tell them to stop. Jesus, make them be quiet. You see, the Pharisees have opposed Jesus. And have opposed his teaching from the beginning. As it contradicted their system of worship. It contradicted their system of power and privilege. So they tell him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because in their eyes, what is being said is wrong. The disciples lay down their cloaks in an act of at least momentarily understanding what Jesus came to do. The broader group of disciples and followers proclaim something they didn't fully understand, but speaking truth about who Christ was and what he came to do. And then opposed to that, it is, it is standing out in this text that you've got that going on. And then the Pharisees, because it should have been reversed. The Pharisees were the, the religious elite. They were the scholars of their time. Them above all others should have been the ones laying down their cloaks and laying down palm branches. They should have been the ones telling the crowd to do it. Because they of all people should have known what was coming and yet Jesus doesn't listen. He makes it there's humor in the comment. Even if the crowd went solid, silent, these rocks would cry out. The rocks would praise God. They would sing of his goodness. Why? Because what was being said was true. And there's something here that there's some divine comedy going on. I don't want you to miss it. The Pharisees were not only guilty of not understanding the Scriptures and coming to the wrong conclusion of Christ, but they're also guilty of ignoring creation which screams God is sovereign. Think about it. In creation, Jesus spoke the universe into existence. It obeyed Him. At the Red Sea, through the instrument of Moses, the seas obeyed the will of God and defied gravity and logic. Through the ministry of Hezekiah, the sun goes back in time. Time is reversed. Simply because God willed it to be so. Living trees died at the rebuke of Christ. Fish and bread multiplied at the words of Christ. People that which were dead came back to life. Bacteria, sickness, disease, fever retreated at the words of Christ. Lame came back to healing or hearing and seeing limbs that were were dead on bodies, came back to working, leprosy repelled itself. On and on in the biblical account, we can look at how nature is not only currently obeying the will of God, but also without hesitation, it would bend the natural laws to fulfill God's wish if he had wished it. Right now. This was a harsh rebuke for the Pharisees. For they had God's word. They were to prepare for Jesus' coming. They were to study and to know to bring the nations in. And yet Jesus, what he's really saying to them here is these rocks are doing a better job at what I told them than you are. Think about that. These rocks, which I told them to sit there and be rocks, are being more holy than you are, Pharisees. And if that's not enough, all I've got to do is tell them to do your job and they do it too. That's the power of God. That, that's God's will and God's sovereignty over this world and over the affairs of mankind. When God says it, it is so. And what He is told is, is obeying to this day all of creation, carrying out its divine will and plan. And if we need a reminder, God's not above telling it to do our part too. God's provisions all around us, dear Christian. We barely scratched the surface on the, what a beautiful passage. But I pray that at least in a a small way you see even more today how God fulfills His plans. God carries out every detail to bring salvation to His people and glory to His name. This is a good passage for us this morning. It is good for us to read what was uttered by the crowd. We have sung it, we have proclaimed it, we have prayed it, and now we have heard it. And so my prayer for us this morning as we conclude Is that we will now live it. That we would declare it with our hearts. And we would live it out with our lives. That we would go into this week saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in in heaven and glory to God in the highest. That we would live our lives as if it is true. For it is. It is true. Because God has said so. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father we thank you this day. You have said, trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Lord, you bring us from death to life. You do a miraculous work in our own lives when we trust in you, when we ask for the forgiveness of our sins and take you by faith. You transform us from dead to alive, from children of wrath to children of promise. You take us from where we were, dead and lost in our sin, to alive in Christ and having hope. Lord, I pray that everyone here today believes this message. That those that have heard it would rest upon Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation. Lord, oh how we need this. What a beautiful reminder of your providence from the micro to the macro. You've carried out your plan from the beginning and will do so all the way to the end. And Lord, we thank you for letting us be a part of it. Help us, oh Lord. Be glorified and do good unto your people.